From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. Tunisia, the birthplace of the Arab Spring in 2011, is in dire straits. Its economy is in shambles and its politics in turmoil. Back in July, popularly elected Tunisian President Reis Saeed seized additional powers from the parliament and the executive branch in what critics have called a coup. Four months later, how is the situation evolving and where do most political actors stand vis-à-vis the president? Khalil asked these questions and more from our regular Tunisian correspondent, Tunisian scholar and political analyst, Mohamed Hammami. Mohamed Hammami, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us as usual. Thank you for having me again. Mohamed, President Sayed of Tunisia seized nearly all powers on July 25th, suspending parliament and dismissing the government in a move that his critics called a coup before installing a new prime minister and announcing he could rule by decree. His new prime minister, Nejla Ramdan, who was selected September 29th, is the first female to hold that title in Tunisian history, also in, in the Arab world's history. What is the significance of Saeed's decision to pick a woman prime minister, in your opinion? Well, first of all, I wanted to, to just mention that, yes, he seized executive and legislative power, but he was not able to seize judicial power, which is another mm. battle, we may talk about this later. However, the appointment of Boudin, or Van is her, is her husband's name, is symbolic, yes, definitely, and deniable to break that taboo and to make that first step and have a woman as a prime minister. However, the problem is that she does not have any prerogatives. Her position is very different from all the prime ministers we had since 2011. During the Ben Ali and Bourguiba period, the prime minister was assisting the president in the execution, in the use of executive powers. So now, Qaisaid is returning to that point and breaking with the tradition that was built after the revolution, where there is a division of executive power between the president and the prime minister, where the president will be in charge of only defense and foreign affairs, and the prime minister has the right to manage all domestic affairs without consultation with the president. So Boudin, yes, she is Tunisia's first female prime minister. However, she is simply helping Said in the execution of executive powers. And according to the executive decree he published in September. And when I use the word help, it's actually the exact word used in the decree. So it's unfortunate that our first female prime minister in the country or in the region has really strong constraints on her action. And there are even people who think that the reason why Saeed appointed a female is not from a feminist perspective, but rather from a total opposite logic, where 
he may think that having a female prime minister is safer than having a male minister who will probably be ambitious and overthrow him. Because according to, again, the same executive decree published in September, the prime minister has the right to replace the president in certain circumstances by simply holding a meeting of the Council of Ministers. So the reasons we don't have a constitutional court, we don't have a parliament, we don't have any institution that can prevent a coup by the prime minister against the president, it was somehow logical for him to appoint uh, someone with no political career or no political experience and no political ambition as a prime minister instead of having someone who would betray him like the previous prime minister did when he switched alliances and became closer to another's party than the president who appointed him. So who is Najla within Ramadan and what does she represent? Since she's sort of a clean slate, tell us a little bit more about her. Najla Boudin uh, Ramadan is university professor, geologist by training. She does not have any political experience. As far as we know, she was never a part of any political party. After this, never, she never had any public office. All what we know about her is that she worked on some projects in the Ministry of Education on the modernization and privatization of the higher education system. We also know that she created an NGO uh, a few years ago with influential business people who own private universities. And what I can add to that is that people who worked at the U.S. Embassy before 2011 were in touch with her as an academic who was involved in in academic cooperation with U.S. academia. Aside from that, we know very little about her. By mid-October, Tunisia had a new government with a new cabinet, which includes a record number of women, 10 out of 24 ministers, including key posts such as justice, finance, commerce, and industry ministries. Nida Tunis, the secular party that ruled until Qais Saeed came to power, also used the enticement of progress on women's rights as a shield against criticism, borrowing a page from previous presidents like Habib Bourguiba. So you said you think the reason is that he thinks she'll be more compliant, more pliable than a guy, less dangerous to his power. But is he also trying to borrow a page from previous presidents who had used the legitimate issue of women's rights as a cover? Or do you think he is sincerely interested in making headway on that front for the sake of the country? Well, I think part of what you said is definitely correct. There was a tradition in Tunisia that started with Bourguiba, where the head of the state would present himself as the patriarchal savior who would help powerless women to have access to elite positions. So he is in that line. But that's not the only factor. We should also take in consideration that his chief of staff and main advisor is also a woman. 
woman from also an academic background who is also connected to several other female academics in Tunisian universities, so that might play a role. There is a concept in sociology called homophily. People who are similar or who have similar characteristics tend to bond together. So it's very likely to find more female ministers when, when there is a woman who influences the choice of the cabinet. And so many people also think that the chief of staff of Saeed had a strong influence in the selection of the cabinet. So I don't think it's just about what is now called state feminism. The new cabinet's composition has been described as technocratic. Tell us more about this new group of people, their political orientation, what they might be expected to accomplish as a collective. Well, I would say the more appropriate word would be bureaucrats rather than technocrats. Significant number of them were simply high-ranking bureaucrats in the ministry that they are in charge of right now. None of them has a clear political affiliation or ideological orientation. Most of them are totally unknown to the public. One of them is actually the Minister of Higher Education, used to be director of the university where I studied in Tunisia. And I know him personally, he does not have a political affiliation, but the fact that they were not politically visible, meaning that they don't necessarily have ideals they are fighting for. And what makes it even more difficult to comment on their profiles is that since their appointment, they refuse to interact with the media. Every time journalists invite them, they simply send bureaucrats under the authority to respond to media questions. Probably the only exception is the Minister of Interior and the Minister of Defense. Both of them are very close to Qais Saeed. Both of them males, both of them men too. Yes. Tawfiq Sharfuddin was Minister of Interior in previous government and was dismissed by former Prime Minister Mashishi in January 2021. And that led to the escalation of the tension between him and President Saeed. The Minister of Defense, however, is also unknown to the public, but I found an interesting document. He translated himself for German Foundation, where he claims that the Article 80 of the Constitution allows the president to exercise what is called dictatorship of public salvation, a concept that does not exist in Arabic political jargon that is borrowed from the period of the French Revolution, the terror following the the French Revolution, which can be presented as an analogy to the idea of the benevolent dictator. So I think think this is maybe an indication of the Minister of Defense belief. And there's also Saeed's colleague, he's a, a law professor, We also know, we have a few information on the Minister of Economy and Planning, whose family name is also Saeed, but is unrelated to uh, Qais Saeed. His name is Samir Saeed, a financier, a banker more specifically, 
who held several positions in state-owned companies, state-owned banks in both Tunisia and Oman. Aside from these, we don't know that much from... Actually, I would like to add something which is interesting. The Secretary of State to Foreign Affairs was critical of Qais Saeed before her appointment in the cabinet. She was interviewed by NPR before the formation of the cabinet, and she described Saeed as a wannabe dictator. So it's ironic that she ended up accepting the position while she thinks that Saeed has dictatorial ambitions. Maybe it's a positive for her. Dictatorship is a good thing. (laughs) And she wants to be part of it. (laughs) The way she said it, I think it was was more about personal ambition and having uh, in her CV uh, experience a line that said that she was a member of a cabinet. I think it probably... And retirement plans and perks and all that. Yeah, well, in Tunisia, actually, (laughs) they get a retirement plan only if they stay, if they preserve their position for more than two years. Ah. So it's problematic that, like, if you work two years as a minister, you would get a retirement uh, as if you worked your entire life uh, as a minister, which does not make sense for me. But most of ministers or large number of ministers we had in Tunisia were not able to reach two years. So they were not able to to guarantee a retirement plan. To come back to a topic we've tackled before in previous interviews, both the president and the new prime minister, Ms. Boudin Ramadan, have proclaimed loud and clear and repeatedly that priority number one for them is to rid Tunisia of corruption. In previous interviews, you personally have expressed some skepticism as to the seriousness of those professed intentions given the balance of power and given the fact that the type of conflict of interest the president alludes to as corruption are endemic to capitalism as we know it. What can the government do, either on a symbolic level or in substance, to deliver on some of these repeated promises? Tunisians' expectations must be high on that score. What can they do? I think there is not that much to do, to be honest, since you mentioned it's it's uh, endemic and it goes from the average citizen who would pay a bribe instead of paying fines when they get caught by the police. But I think people were expecting Said to deal with more serious forms of corruption. The one that we see at the top of the of the social uh, political hierarchy. They expected him to hold accountable political actors who enriched themselves from public office or to deal with influential business people from both Bourguiba and Ben Ali's period who were involved in corruption. And so far, he did not do anything. He's been targeting mostly marginal actors, either politicians who were involved, like several politicians were arrested actually not for corruption charges, but for things that have to do more with freedom of expression. It's difficult to claim that we even saw a war on corruption or a serious 
effort to, to deal with corruption. And in fact, recently, a former anti-corruption minister and a former head of the of the independent anti-corruption national commission critiqued Said for not taking taking anti-corruption seriously. They referred to specific cases that they are familiar with, in which Said could have made some decisions and accelerated the process. So far, he's been blaming the court system for not handling the cases quickly, but it seems that his rhetoric, his critiques are meant to to discredit the court system rather than to put pressure on them to accelerate the, the process. And I'm saying this because we know that courts in Tunisia are understaffed, significantly understaffed. The, the court in charge of serious financial crime has only 10 judges and does not have technical experts. So if he was serious about fighting corruption, he would have appointed more judges in the financial judicial poll or at least activated what, what they call the technical branch of the, of the court and brought more experts to help judges deal with sophisticated cases of money laundering. But he didn't do anything of this. He just posted a few videos on Facebook attacking the court system and attacking judges for not taking uh, corruption as seriously as, as people expect them to do. The new prime minister has said that fixing public finances and implementing economic reforms is a priority. It's the first sign of government's intention to launch reforms demanded by lenders and to ease the financial crisis. What does this signal to you as far as addressing Tunisia's economic problems is concerned? Well, in previous discussion with you, I mentioned that Said is critical of international financial institutions, of the experience of the structural adjustment programs that started in the 1980s. But the problem is that by starting negotiation with the IMF, he's sending a negative signal to people who supported him because of his economic views. He shows that he is not that committed to his ideals. It shows that he is more willing to comply to the dictates of international financial institutions than what he he previously claimed. It also shows that he is willing to lose supporters, even engage in in confrontation with UGTT, the labor union that opposed the IMF reforms. Um, So I think the political cost of these negotiations with the IMF will be pretty high for Kaiser Said. But we should also keep in mind that he is doing this because he was not able to mobilize financial resources from elsewhere. In the first days after the coup, it seemed to Tunisian observers or Tunisian citizens that he was about to get financial support from Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and even possibly Algeria. Uh, (laughs) But during the last months, we didn't see anything. 
And it seems that these regimes are not willing actually to support Saeed. And I guess they understood that he's not necessarily a good investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw recently the Emirates intervening in the Turkish crisis with massive investment. They could have done that with Tunisia if they thought that Saeed is a strategic ally and might serve their interest. So I guess Saeed expected them to help him. And when he realized that he's alone and no one is willing to support him, he ended up going to the IMF and making such politically sensitive concessions. Uh, Speaking of the UGTT, which you just uh, mentioned, the General Labor Union in Tunisia, a powerful labor union, the Secretary General has said that the country's suspended parliament should not be reinstated after President Qais Saeed's seizure of power in July because, quote, Tunisians have suffered from the actions of the now frozen parliament, end of quote. And he has called for fresh legislative elections. UGTT, which has about 1 million members in a country of 10 million, has always been a dominant force in Tunisian politics. What game is it playing here? I think that's an excellent question. So we should keep in mind that UGTT is internally divided between those who are professional unionists, who are politically independent from any political party, and those who are affiliated to political parties who support Saeed, like the Pan-Arabists, or another section of the Watad, we call them. Historically, they were communists. I don't think they are anymore. So the Secretary General has to take the divergence of UGT's leaders in consideration, especially in a pre-electoral period. UGT is about to hold its Congress, and Tabubi is running again, so... I guess that's why he's not radically opposing Saeed in all his decisions. Uh, I also think that Tabubi is still interested in democracy. And as you mentioned, he called for new elections. But he understands that no one else supports a return to July 25th and the reinstallation of the previous parliament aside from Nahda. So it wouldn't make sense for him to go against the trend. I think this decision is more pragmatic than anything else. However, I think we should, I should also mention that he opposes Saeed's political project and the idea of construction from the bottom, uh, the kind of bottom-up process of election, the kind of weird system that he wants to implement. Tabubi compared this project to Gaddafi's experience in Libya, and he said that he is unwilling to support such a project. So I think Yujitite's position is a bit complicated to understand because of the internal contradictions and internal tensions, but overall I would say that Yujitite is critically opposing Saeed, but not radically opposed to him. UGTT has also called for judicial investigation 
after a demonstrator died from inhaling tear gas fired by police to disperse protests against the reopening of a landfill site in Agarab. Tell us what happened there. Two months ago, Tunisia's second biggest city saw the emergence of a waste crisis, a lot of waste that was not collected and that became a problem, transformed into an environmental crisis. So Said's solution was to simply move this waste to a peripheral city, uh, so a town close to Sfeqas, and his decision was opposed by the locals who took the street to protest, and he decided to deploy police forces to repress them. So this, is, this goes obviously against his alleged attachment to local democracy, and, and it seems that he's more interested in the position of top-down decisions. But during these confrontation and during the repression of this movement, one person died, people were injured. So we saw several statements of several political actors, including Ujdete, denouncing the way authorities dealt with the situation. Statements even came from political party parties that still support ISIS Ayed because they believe that he is. Uh, leading us toward what he called, what they call a true democracy uh, that is different from the classical, traditional liberal democracy that post-2011 elites were trying to implement. So now we're recording on, on November 30th. So today, Ujidite Utika, which is the, the, the business owners association, UTAP, which is the Agricultural Mostly Landowners Association and the Bar Association published a joint statement calling for a regional strike December the 10th in reaction to the lack of seriousness of the authorities in dealing with this environmental crisis. And I think it's a big escalation. Organizing a general strike in the second biggest city is usually seen as a serious form of contestation or opposition to actors. Historically, Sfax had only a few general strikes, and I think it signals a strong opposition of these very influential political actors to Qaisi side, and don't think it's just because of the environmental crisis. There have been also continued protests against the coup, as you call it, and the streets. But how is the street uh, going, the street uh, protest and counter-protest? So we saw protests supportive of Saeed and protests opposing Saeed. The number of participants increases every time they organize a new protest. But here we're talking about well-organized, large protest that exceeds a thousand participants. However, when we look at the trends of social contestation in general, we can see that in September, for example, September 2021, the overall number of protests identified by the Tunisian Forum of Economic and Social Rights is higher than the number of protests organized in the same period of time last year, meaning in September 2020 or in September 
which means that the social contestation today is even stronger than the last two years. So I don't know how long this would last, but we can say that Saeed is definitely subject to a strong pressure coming from the bottom. And most of these protests actually are not even organized by unions. Uh, according to the FTDOS, the, the Forum, Tunisian Forum of, of Economic and Social uh, Rights estimates, almost 70% of them were spontaneous and not organized by unions or associations or political parties. Mr. Saeed is also facing mounting pressure from foreign allies, friends among them, to reinstate parliament and return to Tunisia's previous system of governance. A U.S. State Department spokesman has also urged the Tunisian government to respect freedom of expression, other civil rights, as stipulated in the Tunisian constitution. The EU has also made a motion to protest or to encourage the government to come back to constitutional law. How important is this foreign pressure? And is it having any effect on Qais Sayyid? I think these positions are important. Otherwise, we wouldn't see Saeed reacting in a very angry way and accusing his opponent to uh, ally themselves with foreign power uh, against the state, against the Tunisian state. One of the reasons why he would be angry because Tunisia was historically dependent on, on loans and investment from these countries. And so far, it seems that they are not willing to give the same amount of financial resources as he expects them to do or as they used to do. But at the same time, we should keep in mind that the U.S., for example, recently approved almost reserved same amount of military aid, for example, to the Tunisian army. They didn't reduce it. The only condition was the report to describe to what extent the army was involved in the July 25th events. I think the U.S. and, and France are more attached to their interest in the country, whether they are economic or, or, or military, more than to democracy or the liberal ideals they claim to, to value or human rights. Or, I mean, we saw them supporting the regimes in the region that did more obvious clues like Sisi in Egypt or, or I mean, most of the, their strongest allies are not the Democrats at all. And we've seen so, them supporting Ben Ali before. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, Ben Ali, yeah. so... So they, they yeah. talk the talk as usual, but not, don't necessarily walk the walk. Yeah, exactly. President Saeed has used the COVID-19 health crisis as justification for keeping this power that he seized. How is Tunisia coping with the pandemic as we speak? How's the vaccination campaign going? Uh, last time we talked, it wasn't going that well, but it seems to have made some progress in the meantime. We have one of the highest rates of vaccination in, in the continent, close to 50% a full vaccination, and that's, I think I would say, great. However, the problem is that those who did not vaccinate, there, there is a problem of vaccine hesitancy that the government is not taking seriously. 
people die vaccine positions. The government is not putting that much effort in raising awareness on the importance of vaccine. So I don't know if 40% of vaccination how would protect us from this new variant that recently emerged. Mm-hmm. I hope it does. I don't. Um, I think it's too early to to make any statement regarding the spread of the new variant in Tunisia. So far, we didn't was not identified. We saw also an increase in the budget, 2021 budget of the Ministry of Health by half a billion Tunisian dinar, uh, which is a huge amount. Uh, we don't know how the government is using this money. I talked to people recently from the health sector and they are skeptical of Tunisia's readiness to a new wave. So yeah, I think my perception of the situation is is nuanced. So the total number of vaccinated people, the proportion is is good, is not that bad in comparison with, with other countries in the continent. But there are a lot of problems that are not currently addressed. Seriously. How are the hospitals coping? When we last talked, they were seemed to be overwhelmed with the case numbers and lack of ability to help everyone. They're not in that situation anymore because Saeed coup ha- happened during the peak of the of the, flight, of, uh, the for summer wave. We're not in that situation anymore. The number of cases now is pretty low, but it does not mean suddenly that people's trust in the hospitals or 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 perception of the quality of health services increased. I think that the, there are structural problems that are still there. That's why I'm more concerned about I'm concerned about the impact of a new wave. If we get hit by a new wave caused by this new variant, I hope that we don't go back to the same problems we saw in we saw last summer. Amen to that. Anything you want to add before we we adjourn? I think, uh, although the the reliability of polls is debatable, but it seems that Kaisai's popularity is sharply decreasing, uh, losing thirty point in only how many four months? Four months? Three months? Three four months? Three yeah. months? Yes, mm-hmm. I think that's a lot. Uh, the level of support to the prime minister is lower than the previous governments. So people are already now discussing what would happen when Saeed becomes unpopular because it seems that it's inevitable. So maybe that's why they is proposing new election as a solution to the overall crisis. Some people are even afraid that the military would step in in case Saeed becomes very unpopular, but also the political elite, the civilian political elite remains unpopular. So I think we should be concerned about the decrease of science popularity as well. It's a good science somehow, but it means that he, it will be difficult for him to become a dictator, but the outcomes are highly uncertain.